Hello and welcome to the CRE with CDC Worldwide podcast. This is Tom Hershey from Cobalt Banker Commercial. Joining me today for part two of our part two-part series are John Marshalla and Andrew Freeman of KO Storage. John and Andrew are here to continue our discussion in the, to the self-storage market, looking at both investment strategies and market fundamentals. Today, we finish the conversation discussing what is driving the market now and what they see as the future of the self-storage business. Gents, thank you for continuing the conversation. During the last chat, you made me think of a ton of questions, but let's start with demand. I live in a town where, you know, it's our whole county, I think, is 140,000. And, you know, the town I live in is around a little over 100, a little under 100. And it certainly seems like there are a disproportionate amount of self storage units here, yet they're all full. Um, I will say I rent a self storage unit. So, what areas, I mean, is, you know, what determines demand? Where are the areas that you have more demand? Um, versus you know what areas do you think lack demand yeah no that's a great question and i wish it was a simple answer um it's it's so market driven and market specific you know anecdotally you know if you read through some blogs or you start doing some research they're gonna you're gonna hear the four d's death divorce downsize dislocation is what drives demand for storage i think all of those make sense um you know death and divorce for sure dislocation, you know, you get laid off and you you become nomadic looking for work, you're going to go throw your five by your precious belongings in a five by 10 or 10 by 10, you're going to pay that bill and you're going to go find work. So those have always kind of been at the forefront of storage investors and people who, who um, you know, drive, you know, feasibility and what they're looking at as it relates to demand, you know, COVID and a lot of the other things have brought to the market probably a lot of what you're seeing in this increased demand you know one thing that we're seeing with covid is people turning a you know second third fourth bedroom in their home into a home office and they're going and storing their belongings or they're doing a lot of diy projects because of the the lockdowns and they've got all this free time i mean diy projects are through you know the roof or remodels on top of it what i've seen and what john has seen is in a lot of these tertiary markets, uh, you know, with the, the the rise of Airbnbs and BRBOs and people who ordinarily wouldn't go buy a second home without that, you know, somewhat certain second stream of income, they go buy these homes and for one month or two months of the year or three months of the year, they use it for themselves. And then for the other, you know, eight, nine, 10 months, whatever, they list on those platforms, but when they're there, they like to keep their personal belongings in there. But when they're renting it for the other eight, nine, 10 months, they're storing their stuff. So in these smaller markets or even mid-sized markets where there's a, a big um, you know, pool of those kind of uh, houses, you see a lot more demand. And then the other thing is here in the Midwest, everyone's got a toy, a boat, a motorhome, an RV, an ATV. And different cities and municipalities and counties have different regulations or ordinances. You know, we have a facility here in a city where you can't park anything, you know, in the street long term. 
you know? So if, even if it's your house, you can't park it on your lawn. You can't park it in the back. You can't park it on the street long-term. So if you have a third vehicle with a two-car garage, if you have a boat, if you have an RV, you have to go get some sort of outdoor storage. And then another big one is, you know, not a mystery to anyone, but sales of motorhomes and RVs have just been absolutely insane and you know people go use them for you know taking you know their vacations or at leisure but then most times people don't want them just sitting on their driveway so you're seeing a lot of outdoor storage and boat parking you're seeing a lot more of these large 10 by 50 you know oftentimes referred to as man caves um where you can go tinker around on uh your toys you know you can pop beer and play pool it's really a place that you can store your stuff while also you know messing around with the toys and, and repairing them so those are some of the things that i think are really driving the demand and i know that was a long-winded answer to your question <laughs> is you know by markets you know my market might seem like it has more demand but you take all those things into consideration you might have more demand Take a military town, for instance, with deployments and people coming and going overseas, you're going to have a lot more of a yo-yo of a facility, but your demand might be a lot higher than, you know, what the industry specifics say. So we definitely take, you know, industry research and we take feasibility studies, but then we also take um, a qualitative approach too. So we've taken a very quantitative and qualitative approach to how we, you know, see the demand in these markets. Sounds like it goes way beyond just like demographics. Um, and, oh yeah. And home size, or yep. you know, I was I was just thinking, you know, homes in Northern California t tend to be smaller because land is at a premium, so you don't have as much storage space in the house so you've got to rent a unit and that is you know kind of my thought process but but i but i hear what you're saying i want to ask though as you're talking it it kind of triggered in my mind here storage is i mean we don't have snow so to speak um so storage units are all outdoor they're you know, big yard, you pull your car or your truck right up to the door and unload your stuff. It is, I mean, are you, when you're looking at stuff, or are, is there a big difference between like indoor where you actually have to go inside a, you know, multi-story storage building um, than this single level outdoor stuff? You know, yeah, and, and it, it's really, again, very market-driven. Um, you know, we're in Minnesota. We get a lot of snow. It's very cold up here, but there's still demand for the cold roll-up doors. Um, typically, you know, again, this is a broad-stroke approach, but the more rural you get, the bigger the unit, the more apt people are for something to be a larger roll-up door because their home's probably bigger and they're probably more likely storing outdoor activities or toys or larger items. Whereas when you get into more of a, a downtown metropolitan area, uh, you know, people are living in apartments and 1200 square foot condos and things like that. And so, so the need is more so for a extra five by 10 closet or five by five closet. Um, you know, typically when you think about that, uh, as far as cost versus, 
um, you know, what you could lease it up for, you know, a general rule of thumb. And again, this is very broad stroked is that climate controlled can lease up for about 20 to 30% more than the traditional cold roll up. Um, a lot of caveats to that, you know, one, it costs a lot more than 20% to 30% more to build. It, it, uh, costs more to maintain cause you're going to have to obviously maintain cleaning inside. You're going to have to, you know, heat and cool it, uh, depending on your climate. And oftentimes a, a facility like that will require some sort of an onsite person because there's an indoor area and you can have more issues with crime or, uh, squatters or things like that. So it changes things. Um, it's definitely, you know, when you look at the, the bigger players, and the higher caliber and the big equity that comes into this it's it was their first choice to go with the higher end you know class a you know four to five caps in, in big metropolitan areas because it's what they're used to doing going to big markets with strong employment bases big in population they look at these macro factors and they're comfortable doing it because that you know they don't think there's big downside risk but you know we intentionally targeted the vc and tertiary markets where you have the more a lot more of the cold traditional roll-up doors uh it, it positioned us in a good spot because we weren't competing for acquiring the same assets as these big players that we started the gate they're starting to kind of open their eyes to it now uh call it serendipity but when COVID hit a lot of people fl fled the big cities and, and kind of pushed out to the suburbs and the tertiary markets Billings Montana is one example where we uh, got a couple of facilities under contract right when COVID hit and our lease up I mean we can't we can't keep an empty unit there and our rates have consistently increased to the point where every seller that sold to us we own three facilities there now is has basically asked uh, to, to buy us out of the purchase agreement because uh, of the, the migration there from California and Washington and Oregon. So, you know, what call, it may have just been luck, serendipity, whatnot, but we, we really felt like we could kind of bring the A market service approach to those B markets, do it with the cold roll-up doors. And, uh, you know, when COVID hit, it, it further, you know, drove those markets. And as the metropolitan areas get more saturated, we're finding that the bigger players are now getting more and more comfortable coming out to the tertiary markets. So that's kind of been what we've looked at. You know, we're doing developments in a few areas. We've, you know, again, I'd say 80, 90% of our portfolio is traditional cold roll-up, but we are starting to incorporate climate uh, where we think it makes sense. Um, you know, and, and there's ways you can do climate without a six story, you know, concrete uh, building. You know, they they make uh, climate controlled units that look like your traditional cold roll up, but they've got an interior hallway and they're insulated. And, and that's a little bit more cost effective way to still give somebody the same um, product, but, uh, you know, build it a little bit cheaper and, and still, you know, still deliver the same result. Um, so. Do you guys then, you just said development, so are you developing as well as just buying or are you strictly just buying existing? Yeah, um, both. Uh, you know, as as we started, you know, I don't know if John mentioned it earlier, but nothing makes us more giddy, you know, than finding a facility that's, you know, semi-stabilized or has, you know, 300 units, with good occupancy, room to drive rates, with land to build more, and someone who hasn't built or raised their rents and no website. So we found a lot of those properties and we just started using local builders and we were just never content with the product we got. And we did that for a year or two years. And then as more and more people were jumping into this industry, it was harder and harder to buy as is properties. So uh, we kind of, decided that it'd be a good time or a good idea to start our own construction arm. We had enough 
construction just on our own properties and we saw you know a lot of it too um you know we were kind of uncertain was what was going to happen with the change in guard as it related to a lot of the the taxable implications you know were people going to be selling in 2022 like they were in the years prior depending on what happened with capital gains or 1031s and stuff like that so we thought and opined that development and construction would be a big aspect of our 2022 roadmap we weren't happy with what was out there so uh, vertical integration. We started our own construction company. We've got 15, 20 employees around the country building a million uh, square feet, give or take, um, you know, 10, 20 projects, uh, everything from adding on to existing facilities to ground up developments. And it's nice to have that in our uh, bag or, you know, or in, our, in our tool bag to be able to do that. It really continues to help set us apart and continue on this exponential growth um, we've been having. So when you go in and, and let's say you're looking for a market, you found a market, you want to put self-storage, uh, a self-storage product in that market. What, I mean, how does, how does like municipalities react? Are there barriers to entry? Uh, you know, is, are there zoning issues? I, you know, and I know in California, we talk a lot about, you know, lack of affordable housing. And if somebody comes in, wants to build something, they're like, oh, no, we'd rather have housing there. Um, how does like how do those barriers to entry from a development standpoint come into play? Yeah, I mean, you know, you make an interesting statement and I think it. it alludes to a lot of how people approach, you know, traditional real estate. And and you said, when you look at a market and say, you want to enter this market, um, you know, our forefront and our first priority has always been to acquire existing facilities. So we've kind of worked our way around the country um, looking for those opportunities, uh, both by utilizing traditional brokers that, that bring us deals, as well as uh, we have our own internal outreach team that just cold calls sellers all day, every day, uh, or, or owners of, of facilities. So what we typically like to do is plant our flag in a market and then kind of build around that. So, you know, we make our first acquisition, we kind of set the market comp, and then we try to acquire as much of the other, you know, owners in that region as we can to kind of give ourselves some critical mass there uh, as we scale. So, you know, we're not necessarily going out and looking for raw land per se at this point in time. Um, we do have a couple ground up developments that we're doing, but that's a little bit newer of an approach for us. Um, when we look at kind of risk reward on anything, you've got lowest risk, lowest reward being a 100% occupied grade A facility in a large metropolitan area, right? Stabilized, no issues, but there's no meat. And highest risk, highest reward being buying some raw land in a new city and developing and leasing it up and, and selling or refinancing it. And then you get the middle of the road, which is an existing facility uh, that maybe is 80, 90% occupied, has an extra acre or two that's already entitled and can be developed. And so you can come in and do your operational changes to raise rent cut expenses you can build and lease up but you're doing it while you already have in place cash flow so that's our that's our ideal optimal scenario but and where we really focus most of our initial efforts and we're you know i'd still say a majority of our efforts are focused today but as we get more and more comfortable with markets uh you know and, and our construction company continues to improve their processes procedures and we learn more about you know storage demand and what drives it we, we are getting more and more comfortable with ground up builds and that in those cases we may seek out land in a market where 
you know, there's no sellers. We already have a presence and our facilities are full. And, 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 and usually we'll look for land that's either already entitled or just requires a simple conditional use permit. Uh, but we've also had success in, you know, getting zoning laws changed, things like that. And our team is very comfortable working, you know, with city planners and, and trying to gauge their appetite for that type of a thing. Um, usually we're not, we're not fighting the uphill battle though, uh, that your traditional, you know, call it 10 story apartment complex developer would where they're going to need 80 variances to get their project across the finish line. <laughs> um, we're, we're, we're trying to minimize that as much as possible and come into something that's already entitled and ready, ready for development. We just need our permits that approved. So. I get it. So you're not looking at like a plot of land that could necessarily be utilized for like a retail center or an office building or an apartment building. You're looking at stuff that, you know, where the highest and best use is probably going to be something like self-storage. Yeah. I mean, real estate rule number one, location, 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 isn't at least in my opinion, as important when it comes to self-storage, you want to be in a good zip code. You want to be in a good area, but a lot of the visibility doesn't come from driving by or where someone wants to live. It comes from what do you do if you need a storage facility? You whip out your phone, you type in self-storage in City X or self-storage near me, and you look at the first one and you, you call them or you don't. And that represents you know 80 to 90% of our customers. And so, yeah, I don't care if it's you know next to an athletic facility or next to a cornfield, as long as they find me and it's within five minutes of, of where they're at or you know in some of our more rural markets 15 minutes of where they're at that's our target market and john so, and i have never butted heads but if we were to ever butt heads, <laughs> it, it might be on that you know location 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 <laughs> i might argue a little different but uh no i mean he's he's right you know getting in front of our customers you know my concern is you know when you're out in the cornfields the barriers to entry but again you know something in the middle common grounds is usually what prevails yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about um, market fundamentals, uh, specifically product pro product performance. Um, I always wondered, you know, in in a multifamily scenario, and, and I hate to keep comparing this to multifamily, but in a multifamily scenario, when you try to raise rents, you, you got to take the temperature of the tenant. You know, what will the market Bear. Um, what happens when you raise rents on self-storage? I mean, what what types of increases will the tenant tolerate? I, I will tell you that um, the self-storage unit that I personally rent, I have no idea what they charge every month because it goes right on my Amex and yeah. you know they they could have raised my rent five times over the past couple of <laughs> how years. Long, and how I, long have you been there? Um three years great customer we'd love to have you at one of our facilities you probably had your you probably had your rent raised and you, you you have it on auto pay with your amex so we'd love to have you as a customer but um you know jokes aside um it's 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 complex and we've gotten much more data driven and more scientific on how we do our rent rate increases we've learned the hard way early on that there is a science to it you know we uh, we did a rent rate increase on our first facility and you have to give 30 day notice. And I can't remember if we gave notice at the end of November for a Jan one or, you know, December for a or end of December for a for a, a Feb. But bottom line, and, and we're talking three and five dollar rent rate increases. 
I think we got a few handful of emails that, you know, we are the Grinches that stole Christmas and, you know, Christmas presents wouldn't be bought. And we felt bad, um, you know, but we learned our lesson. And, you know, there's a lot that has to do with timing, but now it's really a supply and demand thing. You know, you can't look at one facility and say, hey, I'm at 50% occupancy or I'm at 60% or I'm at 100%. We want to look more of length of stay for a tenant and then the supply and demand of a specific unit type. You know, with storage, you might have more of a unit mix than an apartment. Apartment, you might have a one bedroom, a two bedroom, a three bedroom. Whereas at a storage facility, you might have a five by 10, a 10 by 10, a 10 by 15, a 10 by 20. 10 by 25, 10 by 30, 10 by 40, you know, the more, you know, there's all sorts of things you might, you know, they call it bankers mix, but, you know, if I'm at a global occupancy of 70%, but I'm at 100% on my 10 by 20s, well, it's pretty evident that there's not enough supply or there's more demand than there is supply. So we might not do an overall rent rate increase at the facility, but we're going to constantly be driving those 10 by 20s people who have maybe been in their units for nine months to 12 months might get a $3, $5 rent rate increase. It's nominal, but when you do it on 100 units or 1,000 units or 10,000 units, it's just straight bottom line NOI. So when you apply it to a cap rate, it's, it's, it's big. So we look at length of stay of tenants. We look at the supply and demand. We look at the time of year. We look at all sorts of other um qualitative factors how have we been performing have we had issues with our fms or have we had break-in issues what have we done to the facility as far as capital improvements you know we don't just want to continue to drive top line and suck out all the fat we really do want to offer a great customer experience and a great service or provide a great service so those are important things to us yeah, and you know, you think about you. You ask, what can the market tolerate? And the the cool thing about storage is, everyone's on a month to month lease, and that may sound scary, but that really plays to our advantage. Uh, one for evictions, and two for rent rate increases. Um, and we can take a very tiered approach. You know, we don't have to do it to every single tenant. We can do it to a tenant if they've been with us for nine months or 12 months and see how the tolerance level is. But when you also think about just from a dollars and cents perspective, if you're renting an $80 a month unit, and as you mentioned, the rent goes up to 88 bucks a month, you get an email notifying you and your Amex payment changes, you're probably not wasting your weekend moving across the street to save eight bucks a month. <laughs> so for you, it's not, it's not a game changer. But if I do an $8 rent rate increase across 500 units, well, let's just extrapolate that out. That's an extra four grand a month, 48 grand a year, put a six cap on that. You just created 800, 900K in value on your property, right? And it's not as simple as that. Obviously there's a lot more that goes into it, but when you get those you know, high numbers of units and you get a method of, of doing it in an effective way where you can consistently do it kind of on a trailing and rolling basis, uh, it, it adds up fast. So what you mentioned cap rates, um... What are you seeing and do the cap rates follow like, you know, if you're buying a property in San Francisco, you know, cap rates are X. If you're buying a property in, you know, Matumla, Iowa, cap rates are Y. Um, you know, what are the cap rates and how do they vary by market? Yeah, I mean, it is very market specific. Um, it's size specific. It's deal specific. Um 
you know, there's also a lot of doc giving to as is, as completed, as stabilized, because the market has gotten so hot. Um, people are getting a lot more creative and a lot more willing to flex or find new ways to add value that, you know, they may not. And and then when you've got the bigger players like the big six REITs, you know, they're I think if you look at their implied cap rates, uh, just based on the market reports we see, they range from like three nine to like four eight or five or something like that. And you know, that's not to say that somebody might not buy a a, a brand new facility at certificate of occupancy where once it's fully leased, you know, maybe it'll be running at a five and a half, six cap. So, you know, you'll see that at the higher end stuff um, with the REITs, the grade A facilities, the, you know, I mean, if you look at like, a, I think a facility in Manhattan or a group of them traded at like 650 bucks a foot, you know, where we're buying stuff in like the 40 to $80 foot range <laughs> in our markets. So yeah, it's very market specific. Um, but you know, for us, we like to kind of buy, you know, and call it the six to eight cap range as is, unless it's a lease up or there's a ton of, you know, upside in some way or another. And and when we stabilize them, we're typically stabilizing somewhere in the eight to 12 cap range. And as you can imagine, you know, with interest rates where they're at, you know, 20, 25 year amortizations, creating value, being able to do cash out refis, things like that, you know, the cash on cash return on those things, you know, within one to three years of optimization is, is pretty substantial. So, you know, my goal and our goal really when we look at these things and underwrite them is to be able to create a return for, you know, investors somewhere in the eight to 10% cash on cash range and an IRR in like the 20 to 30% range, depending on the market. Um, and that's just for the, you know, the investor portion of it, not even us as, as principals. So um, there, there is a lot of, a lot of, a lot of meat there if you know how to run. Right. So if, you're looking at a market, specific market. Um, maybe you're there, maybe you're not there. Just in general, what's competition like for deals? And it, does it depend? I know you've talked, both of you have talked quite a bit today about um, the condition and value add. Um, is there more competition for certain deals than others? Or is the competition pretty stiff all around right now? Yeah, you know, I'd say it's pretty stiff all around. Um, early on, you know, one of my key um, jobs or one of the things I did or oversaw was our acquisitions. And man, it was a lot easier three, four, five years ago to find these off-market deals. You know, you'd call one person. It's like, yeah, this week, next week, next month, you know, six months down the road, let's get together. Let's have a tuna melt at the local diner and you know we can talk turkey and we can put together a deal on this napkin here at the diner you call that same person today i'm the 10th person who's called them today they've probably gotten two calls from you know cbre one from marcus and millichap and you know they probably told them they can get a five and a you know six cap and the crazy thing is they probably can you know you throw out this otumwa iowa um reference and the crazy thing is even in otumwa iowa they're probably getting six caps and it's just crazy what you're seeing in these markets. So the deals are still there, but the, um, the competition is as fierce of as, as I've ever seen it. You know, we were chatting with some bankers yesterday and they're, you know, like you guys are growing really quick. We love to see it. You know, are you guys turning down deals? And it's like, well, we just send you the deals where we're underwriting, looking to move forward with like, let me show you this archive list of 5,000 deals that we've said no to, 
you know, so before when we'd look at, you know, maybe 50 deals and write on 10 and get five, we're looking at 100 deals right now in best case scenario, writing on one and, you know, flip a coin as to if we get it or get outbid. Um, I think one of the things that's really helped us get deals is we might not always be the highest bidder, but we have a reputation um, of assurance of close. We don't nickel and dime and retrade. Everything we've put under contract to date, we close on. There's been a, <laughs> should put an asterisk there, you know, unless something was um, misinformed or we were giving misinformation, we've always closed on what we put under contract, the price in which we put under contract. So, you know, a lot of times what you're seeing is people who more worried about the, the, the extra 50 or $100,000 want a surety. They don't want the emotional roller coaster of maybe selling, maybe not getting to the closing table. And does the buyer have the financing? Do they have the equity? Do they have the ability to, to actually close? Uh, that's what I think has really helped us get a lot of these deals, um, you know, the last six months because we're a reputable group and there's a lot of brokers even who prefer to work with a known connection or a known uh, commodity. Um, so looking forward in your crystal ball, um, that is always 100% correct. Do you do you see the market continuing at such a hot pace for self storage? I, I you know again back to my original comment about you know how unprecedented unprecedented demand for um, self storage units. Do you see that continuing? Do you think it's going to tone down? Um, what do you think the next couple of years are going to bring us? You know, if I had that crystal ball, I'd be super grateful but you know i obviously have quite a few insights and we're always always trying to look and think like you know okay what you know what could happen or what could what could occur that would you know be the, the black swan event or the bubble or what does a bubble even mean you know is there a 2008 moment for self-storage and you know historically and and obviously historic history is never good at predicting this type of a thing um you know even through economic downturns recessions etc self-storage has been very resilient it's it's had a much lower dip than other asset classes and there's a lot of factors that have driven that i mean the low cost of the rental the fact that you know your goods are at risk of being auctioned and your your rent rate is 80 bucks a month would incentivize someone to pay it and you know what drives storage downsizing dislocation bad times when people need to move and put their stuff into storage so that you know a lot of those factors have driven it and covid was the first kind of you know black swan We're like oh is this going to hurt or help or what's going to change and as we've seen it's emerged as one of the best asset classes in that sector so you know as with anything whether it's you know residential multifamily bitcoin pick pick your you know <laughs> dot com bubble of the 2000s i mean you know there, there's cycles and there's there's peaks and there's there's valleys but overall you know you you got to look at at you know when something is getting too hot what's what's going to potentially derail it and so for me and you know my my thought is always like interest rates obviously drive a lot when it comes to valuation of real estate um you know cap rates are great right now but if if rates double you know they're not you know people are you not gonna be able to play the spread so it's they're gonna creep up with it um so for us it's really how do we position ourselves you know 
in a way where we could sustain any type of a you know a moment like that where it, rates could creep up six seven eight percent potentially maybe they never get there um and and you know to do that one you want to make sure you have long-term debt in place so that you know if, if that happens it's not impacting you as greatly and that you buy right and you do things correctly um, I think we're seeing in the self-storage space now, Andrew alluded to it early on, that, you know, one of the things we pride ourselves on is we aren't money guys that said we want to get into self-storage. We were business guys that said, oh, let's try self-storage. And then we touched and dove in and ran every aspect of this business for two years. So, you know, rather than looking at it from kind of an ivory tower as like a macro asset class, we're looking at each and every one of these markets as its own individual business. So where you may see a bubble in a, you know, a city like Austin where they've overdeveloped it, maybe, maybe not with self-storage or housing or anything, um, you know, will that impact self-storage in Salina, Kansas? Probably not, as long as our, you know, microeconomic factors are still in place. And so that's really how we look to it. You know, I, I think um, there's there's a lot of aspects to, is it gonna stay this hot? What does that mean? Is it a bubble? Does it just mean acquisitions and, and transactions will slow down? Will it be a consolidation? You know, you gotta look at all those things. So there's the defensive approach. How do we make sure our cash flow is secure? Our interest rates are good. The markets we're in don't get oversaturated. And, and more often than not, there's a pretty big runway for us to see that coming. And if so, it's a pretty easy exit at this point um, from a specific market. But then from the acquisition side, we're seeing a lot of money guys that are just throwing money at this. They're yeah. you know, r running their pro formas. They want in. They're going to willing to overpay. And when you start seeing that in anything, you know, there there is more propensity for a bubble. And, and so for us, it's really just about, you know, staying disciplined in our acquisition approach. And I think gotcha. one of the things to add to that, you know, just a little further is um, people who were storage investors or who would buy storage pre-pandemic are now more open to going to these B and tertiary markets. I know groups who would never even explore doing a facility in some of these smaller population towns or a, a facility that only had class five gravel and not blacktop or pavement. Now they're kind of like, well, people need storage and they're not, not going to get storage because it doesn't have this, or even people in towns of 50,000 people need storage or the state of Montana needs storage. So all those things are just driving it to be the most competitive market and, you know, asset class and, and, and where we are today. So I think you've effectively killed what I thought about uh, my knowledge of self-storage today. Um, I know a lot less than I really thought I did. So this has been fascinating. Um, and it, you guys were great guests and I really appreciate you joining us. Um, you know, how do our guests, um, our, our rather our listeners, contact you if they, uh, you know, are looking for self storage or they have something to show you? Yeah, John and I love connecting with everyone. So anyone and everyone questions, you know, opportunities, projects, you name it, reach out to us. Pretty easy to to find. We're both on LinkedIn. It's just John Marshalla, Marshall with an A, Andrew Freeman. And then we're also just Andrew at KO Storage and John, J-O-N at KO Storage. So those are probably the best two uh, avenues to reach us. Excellent. Thank you again both for joining. As a reminder to our listeners, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to and like for sure the CRE with CVC Worldwide podcast on your favorite pod app. Also, be sure to check out our up 
other older episodes. There's a lot of great stuff there for you. This is Tom Hershey with Cobalt Banker Commercial. Thanks for tuning in. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.